0: You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to another edition of Phrenesis. Thank you for checking in wherever you are in the world. And today, my guest is Dr. Neil Grunberg. And he is a professor of military and emergency medicine and neuroscience in the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine, professor in the USU graduate school of nursing, professor of military and emergency medicine and neuroscience in the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine, professor in the USU graduate school of nursing, and director of research and development in the USU Leadership Education and Development Program, Bethesda, Maryland. He is a medical psychologist, social psychologist, and behavioral neuroscientist. Dr. Grunberg earned his bachelor's degree in medical microbiology and psychology from Stanford University in 1975, a master's of arts in 1977, a master's of philosophy in 79, and PhD degrees in physiological psychology and social psychology from Columbia University, and completed doctoral training in pharmacology at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. He has been educating physicians, psychologists, and nurses for the armed forces and public health service and scientists for research and academic positions since 1979. He has published more than 220 papers addressing behavioral medicine, drug use, stress, traumatic brain injury, and leadership. He has been recognized for his professional contributions by awards from the American Psychological Association, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Food and Drug Administration, National Cancer Institute, Society for Behavioral Medicine, U.S. Surgeon General, and Uniformed Services University. In 2015, Dr. Grunberg was selected to be a Presidential Leadership Scholar. He is a co-founder of the Healthcare Leadership Community of the International Leadership Association, and he is also a member of Teaching Followers Courage. Sir, that is incredible. Thank you for being here. What else do listeners need to know about you?
1: Well, you're much too kind, Scott, but, <laughs> but we all do our part. And it's my really my privilege to be on this podcast with you today.
0: Thank you. Well, what more do people need to know? I know you're a
1: family man. My wife and I, my wife Nancy and I have four grown children, all themselves healthy and successful. But perhaps for your listeners, there is one aspect about my life that is relevant to how I approach leadership. And that is, I am a a jazz musician. I started playing the drums when I was five years old, started playing professionally when I was 14. I am now 69. (laughs) So I guess I wasn't good enough to really make it in music. But all (laughs) kidding aside, much of the way I approach leadership, especially with the relationship within the team, the leaders, the followers, or teammates, People have various preferences on how to call the members of a team. I use my experience as a musician, especially in jazz ensembles. So when dealing with small groups, similar to a jazz ensemble, I think of the importance that everyone needs to be literally on the same page, on the same sheet of music. But the group can either play and be extraordinary when playing ensemble, but also each individual can take a lead. That is, there's a shared or moving and adaptive leadership, depending on the song. And for myself, as a drummer, that's particularly coaching to think about. As a drummer, I can play loud and try to impress. I can drive the beat. I can set the tempo. I can play in the, if you will, middle of the group. I can play very softly. But I also need to know when not to play at all. Mm. And to me, the way I teach and encourage leadership is understanding leaders followers teammates how do we create that gestalt that ensemble where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and how do we know and respect and learn from each other
0: oh i just love that as a metaphor because i think you know as as you know sharna faviano uses a dancing metaphor which i think is beautiful i love i love even in the description of what you just said there's intentionality there's intentionality on how I should show up in this moment or my best guess as to how to show up in this moment based on what we might be doing and where we might be headed. But there's intentionality. And I think far too often, we don't necessarily have intentionality when people are teaming. I mean, before we started today, I said to you, I feel like sometimes our language, it, it fails us. And really what we're talking about is, are we teaming well? Are we engaging with one another to help the work of the group move forward? And to your point, sometimes you're in the lead. Sometimes you're in a supporting role. Sometimes we're a little more forceful. Sometimes we are less forceful. Sometimes we're using this technique. Sometimes it's another technique, but are we making beautiful music together? (laughs) Or is it a bunch of noise, right?
1: (laughs) You know, I I, want to build upon what you just said, I really like the way I've never heard anyone respond to to this point that I raised about intentionality, but you're spot on. I agree with that. I think the other point that I hope your listeners will find interesting and and we hope will engage with each of us going forward is that we need to also understand the importance of developing all members of a group, of a team, of an organization. So the concept that my colleagues and I have developed, we originally called our conceptual framework of leadership the 4C PITO model, 4C elements at four psychosocial levels, but a personal, interpersonal, team, and organizational. But it evolved as we studied it more in the last few years, and we refer to it now, just consistent with what you pointed out, as a leader-follower framework. We need to have the self-awareness of ourselves in both types of roles, and we need to develop across all of these domains across all these contextual situations psychosocially
0: say more about the model would you would you please go into that a little bit more because i okay. think that's really really interesting and to your point we again i said this to you before we jumped on today i said in in western society we tend to lionize the leader and ron riggio on the podcast i think it might have been my fifth episode and we're on almost on 145 now said, look, you know, leaders don't do leadership. It's co-created between leaders and followers. And again, even when we talk about leader development, it's leader development, leader development, but we do so little to help people better understand the role of being a great follower. And again, I imagine that's, you know, you you do receive that training in music. You do understand the role at times in a very real way when it comes to music, but we tend to completely ignore that dimension of the work in leadership studies.
1: I focus my leadership, fellowship, team building in healthcare. At the Uniformed Services University, we're training physicians, nurses, dentists, psychologists, healthcare professionals. And if anything is a team sport, if you will, it's healthcare. And modern healthcare is quite different from decades or certainly a generation or more ago. Where there was the authoritarian, almost great man theory of Thomas Carlyle, was also a description of the way leaders, physicians, once acted. But that's not true in the last in this century. So, with regard to the framework, we look to build and find which of the many leadership and leader development frameworks and, and approaches would be most apropos for growing not only healthcare leaders, but where I work uniform leaders as well. Yes. Extremely important and otherwise hierarchical structures. Well we borrowed and studied from the extant literature as well as looked at all of the various military service academies. So if you think about it very briefly, those who are familiar with it, from the army, the army has argued for a long time that the essence of leadership is be no do. The day the Navy, however, in contrast points out how the leader's authority responsibility changes at land and at sea. The Mm. Air Force argued about the individual pilot and the machine and the supporting staff. And then we have another key uniform service, and that's the Public Health Service, arguing the importance of message transmission to entire organizations or the public. Well, from it, we selected out the key from each of those historical approaches, as well as studied the extensive literature. From that, our four C elements are character, competence, context, communication. Character is the who of leadership. It includes, however, not only our physical self, but our psychological self, our personality, our values, everything about who we are. But it also means that one needs to enhance in the leader, and we'll say, as you've raised in the follower... A sense of what is your tendency, what's your preference, what are your values, etc. We have to engage and develop self-awareness, but many people focus only on internal self-awareness. The more challenging is external self-awareness. How do others perceive us? Okay. Competences, knowledge, and skills and attitudes and abilities. But it breaks into role-specific to be again a physician, a nurse. An attorney, a teacher, a spiritual leader, a parent, but it also has transcendent or generalized leadership skills, decision making, problem solving, conflict resolution, emotional intelligence, particularly important, as well as motivation of others. To context to our context, we borrow actually from the great Kurt Lewin. The great psychologist who actually was the first scholar to actually study and publish on the three types of leadership originally, authoritarian, democratic, and laissez-faire. I am a student of one of his greatest students, Stanley Schachter. I am an intellectual grandson of of Lewin. Building off Lewin and his field theory in social science, we say context is psychosocial as well as physical. Are we leading day and following day or night, inside or outside, but also physical as inside ourselves? Are we hungry? Are we tired? As well as this, the context of culture, of situation, of stress. And I imagine that, you're, that you and your other guests have discussed VUCA environments, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Then that's the when and where. So if, if character is the who, competence is the what. Contexted the when and where. Okay. Communication is the how of leadership. Wow. Perhaps this is an area that we've been proud to expand the most. Because to my surprise, as I started focusing in this area over the last eight years or so, and shifted some of my own intellectual work and my academic work, and I would ask people, "What's communication?" They would provide a correct but limited answer. They would say, "Communication is giving people information." We say That's not it. Communication is sending and receiving verbally and non-verbally to achieve understanding. And then we also argue to be an outstanding communicator, the more difficult is receiving. And how to receive, the secret to how to receive is hidden in the word listen. Hmm. Because if you take the words L-I-S-T-E-N and rearrange them, they tell you how to listen they spell the words silent and the word enlist. Wow. Silent to receive and enlist to engage and include all others. So when we get to all others, I get back to the point Scott, you made about growing ourselves as followers, but also understanding our followers. Here we've built our conceptual framework of our leader follower framework, also operates at four psychosocial levels. Developing the person, interpersonal dyads, teams, and organizational. But then the next phase of this is what is followership and who is the follower. Here we borrowed from Barbara Kellerman's excellent work where she's talked about followership across a continuum of engagement in which she has five types. Right. She has the isolate, bystander, participant, activist, and diehard. We've added two more dimensions to that. An orthogonal dimension of alignment. Wherever you are, are you aligned or not aligned with the vision, the goals, the purpose as set out by the leader in the group? As well as the third dimension, do you adapt or not? Adaptation, I borrow from Ron Heifetz's work on adaptive leadership, but we like to think we've gone beyond Heifetz as well in the following way. Heifetz talks about being resilient and returning to that norm of being adaptive to the stress of a situation. I completely agree. But what Heifetz is doing, and Heifetz himself is a physician, a psychiatrist, is really applying what's called homeostatic theory, Mm. returning to where you were. We believe that leadership is more than that, and that's why we refer to a certain kind of adaptive leadership, which we call allostatic leadership not to returning to baseline, but to be stronger to what's called resilience to the point of thriving. And in, in fact, the analogy I like to use is adaptive leadership is like the cardiovascular system, blood pressure, heart rate, et cetera. Whereas allostatic leadership is the immune system, getting stronger to be ready for new opportunities, new challenges going forward. So we take those four C's across four psychosocial levels work on developing each of ourselves and others as leaders and followers, and then work on the most challenging, and I would say most important part, having people work together to common missions and goals.
0: I would love to explore a little bit more the whole dimension of follower. What are you experiencing? What are you discovering as you do this work with individuals From that follower side of of the equation, so to speak.
1: Well, thank you. I I really appreciate that. Actually, my my team and I at, at USU, Uniform Services University, years ago, we were focusing, as many places do, solely on leader development until we realized we needed to understand how to deal with followers. And then we had to realize, as I use the analogy to the jazz ensemble, when to follow ourselves. Yes. So within that, as I said, we started searching. And two scholars' work particularly impressed me, the work of Barbara Kellerman and the work of Ira Chaleff. Kellerman' distinction of these four different types of followers, isolate, bystander, participant, activist, and diehard, I thought was interesting. We built off that in a couple of ways, just with that concept. We've found, based on our discussions with people, beginning app surveys and discussions that we believe that the likelihood of where one falls on that follower continuum of Kellerman's is like a Gaussian distribution or a normal distribution bell shape sure. where the majority of people are participants. We also found that people, including ourselves, have a great tendency to be stuck in one mode.
0: Mm-hmm. I, for
1: example, realized as I started thinking about followership a lot, over the last five or six years, thinking, oh my gosh, I am almost always an activist. That is an individual who always wants to participate, but just as I'm doing with you, I'm holding myself back until you've given me an opportunity to jump in. <laughs> but, but I've learned that we also, again, back to the jazz ensemble analogy, we each have to be prepared to change from our more preferred, comfortable type to the other type. That's very important to be aware to make that shift.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think sometimes it takes people aback and, and push back on this. I would love to get your your thought on this. Sometimes I I use a similar model, I use some different phrasing when it comes to follower styles, but it's it the concepts are the same. You know, Kelly has his his labelings, Ira has his labelings, Kellerman has hers. I just decided to add my own, just kind of (laughs) the pot a little more, (laughs) but, but at times, so, so there's one, I think, you know, the sheep or the lazy and disengaged. Well, there are potentially instances where that can be the role that I take on in, in some instances, as long as I'm navigating with some level of intentionality, it might be completely appropriate for me to be a pair of hands or whatever you say, or I need to be activated because I'm not going to be fully engaged or I'm not going to be an activist in every situation. That's probably just not realistic.
1: I, I, I love I love the way you're bringing in intentionality because very few gurus of leadership really make the point. With it, though, it must be coupled with self-awareness.
0: Yes, yes, right? yeah. Oh, for sure, right? Say more. What else have you learned about this dimension on the follower side of this whole conversation?
1: Uh, the other thing we've learned is... Again, we focus on military medical teams as well as medical teams, as well as how does this information transfer to optimize performance of teams. I tend to talk mostly about teams because I like studying small to medium-sized groups. Yes, But what I'm saying also is relevant to change leadership and organization. With regard to the point that you're raising now, though, what we find and encourage is the following. When the leader is first addressing a group, whatever, what size. It is very important that the leader make clear that she or he has a clear vision, a clear goal. But following the work of Richard Hackman, the late Richard Hackman, and various types of ways that one shares responsibility, is that when the leader develops and puts out that vision, first they must make sure that they're achieving understanding and buy-in from the followers. The next stage is that the leader, when describing the goal, the mission, the problem, is to encourage all followers to be activists. That is, I want all of your ideas. Ah. Psychologically safe space. We need you to be engaged in determining what to do. All ideas are welcome. Be an activist. But here's where it gets a little nuanced, and I hope it becomes more clear. After the phase where the leader has set a vision, gotten buy-in, encouraged activism from the followers, here the leader has the responsibility and authority to make the decisions. Once the decision is made, where we're going and how we're approaching it, the leader needs to now do everything not only to emphasize the importance of working together and group identity rather than personal identity. But in addition, the leader must encourage a movement towards alignment, where alignment is mostly aligned as a participant, not arguing or discussing. But then we had this other twist, the Cheyloff point, or what he's sometimes called uh, intelligent disobedience. Yeah, That, I think, is a little too extreme. But the idea that everyone needs to be aligned and moving and participating for, but they can say stop if an error or a danger is to be made. Your listeners will understand this is especially important in medicine. Picture yourself working with a team in a in an operating room. The physician surgeon was in charge, and that was that. Yep. What ends up, we now teach for the operating room, that's not the way you should approach it. Because, in fact, when you first bring in the patient, who's in charge? The anesthesiologist. Mm. Only when the anesthesiologist has determined and reports safety and the patient's well-being as ready for procedure, whether it's the anesthesiologist is a physician or the nurse anesthesiologist, what's called a CRNA or SRNAs, then turns over the shared leadership, transfers to the surgeon. But at this point, we still expect the surgical team, surgical nurses, as well as physicians to be monitoring. If something goes wrong with the patient's vitals, bang, we hope the anesthesiologist resumes rather than is ignored, and the leadership moves back to the anesthesiologist. So we have that movement where we have participants that are aligned with goal, well-being of the patient or execution of a given mission or task, unless something's going to go wrong. I don't think we have time today to get into it, but I've had the honor to discuss with Doctor Ch- with Ira Chaloff the Uvalde horror and why so many well-trained followers waited so long when the leader failed to make a decision that perhaps would have been life-saving. Yes. This is the other part, aware of ourselves, aware of our tendencies. And really, again, I I like picking up the point you've made. And if you don't mind, Scott, I will cite you, but use your point about intentionality when I talk and write going forward. I never emphasized it that much. I really like that. Our self-awareness of how to be and our intentionality of how to be.
0: Yes. But I think in your example of look we're in a we're, we're in a surgical suite right now where there are clear lines of authority and there are clear roles and there are there is a mission and it's very clear. Yeah, we need individuals who are active engaged in paying attention, you know. So in that context it goes back to to Kellerman's notion of context or or Lewin with context. I mean, yes, if it's my HOA Not a, not a surgical suite, (laughs) but I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, it's, it's so interesting. What's really interesting is recently I've been doing this exercise with people when I'm doing programs and I've just called it the personal leadership profile. I don't know that it's going to be called anything different, but that's what I'm calling it for right now. And it's just kind of been an experiment, but it's, it's been an attempt, Neil, to, Really work to situate the individual. This is a person often in a position of authority to situate them in what it's like to work for me. So it's trying to make the the implicit explicit for the leader. But I'm asking questions like or I'm having them answer questions like you have permission to. So you have permission to push back on me if you feel like we're not going in the right direction and you have a concern. You have permission to always do that. And so there's all kinds of questions that I've identified that the leader has to think through that they, if they communicate clearly, will hopefully make things run more smoothly. Hopefully it helps set the stage a little more clearly for the people who are on the team. And yes, that courageous followership that, that notion of, okay, you have permission to say something if you feel like this is not moving in a good direction, because that blind authority and listening to authority, I mean, as human beings, we are so limited, you would know better than anyone from these cognitive biases that cloud, in some cases, especially under great stress, cloud our ability to be successful at times, right?
1: Well, well, absolutely, and and your comments have brought up a couple of related points because as you were describing different situations in the work you're doing now and approach, it's interesting that you started mentioning not positive leadership and followership, but negative. So from that, it's another concept that we've looked to build. So where quite a few authors have written on and called it toxic leadership, we tried to unravel that a bit. So we've published and talked about what we refer to as three different kinds of poor leadership of which we all need to be cautious. And I'm raising it because I, it really fits with your point about intentionality. Yep. It will become clear. We call it bit leadership. Hmm. Bad, ineffective, or toxic leadership. Okay. Three different types. Bad is doing and behaving in a way that's immoral or outrageous or evil. But here, it can have intentionally doing that, or unintentionally for one of two very different reasons. One is the person is not of their right mind, a mental Mm -hmm. health disorder a problem, a substance abuse problem and the like, and so they're not even aware what they're doing. Or it could be unintentional because they're not responsive to that particular culture or situation on what's considered, if you will, appropriate or not, moral Mm -hmm. or immoral, ethical Mm -hmm. or not. The second type, we believe, is the most common type of poor leader, an ineffective leader. And here we get to the point again about communication, because the most common type of ineffective leader leader is the leader who is absent. They can be physically absent. They're never around. They don't pay attention. Or they're psychologically absent. They're not engaged. They don't listen. They don't communicate. They don't transmit information. The third type is really interesting. We use the word toxic leadership, again, because I have a medical background and I teach in medical settings, based on the word toxin, a poison. So it's different from bad or ineffective. It is affecting the others. So certainly someone can be a toxic leader or toxic follower. Yes. Bad mouths or cuts down people or treats them poorly. But there's another, and I'm gonna pick up on your point of intentionality. There is a really dangerous, unintentional way of being toxic. And that is the person who unintentionally plays favorites. So for example, the very nice leader or boss or supervisor who just happened to, based on their background or their likes or the history, became friends with a certain person. So let's say, as you and I get to know each other, Skylight. You and I decide we're going to go out for lunch or have a beer or a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, and you start doing that to a point where the relationship of that leader with everyone else in the group becomes more and more distant because of an unintentional toxicity. We also argue that, again, just as you and I have discussed, these are issues to be aware of not only for ourselves as leaders, but ourselves as followers and the followers who we deal with.
0: Well, Neil, I, okay, so I love the fact that, that you have the model, you're experimenting, you're making sense of the space. What have you learned as you transmit, as you communicate this model to people in the field? How are they responding? How are they experiencing your curriculum? I'm really interested in knowing this.
1: Oh, well, I really appreciate that question. Jury's out a little bit, but <laughs> Because when, when I first started delving deep, because of my own background in social psychology as well as physiological psychology, it goes back decades and decades since I read the work of Lewin and others over the years. But it's only in the last eight years, really, because following the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a greater and greater concern within the military health system in the United States. What was working? What was not working? There was an analysis done, and a report basically came out that the individual healthcare professionals, physicians, nurses, dentists, social workers, physical therapists, radiology technicians, on and on, were excellent. But there was failure of leadership or Mm. inadequacies, and it came down to what was it, what to do that. The reason I mentioned that is it's with this attention, what can we transmit? So the greatest challenge that that my team and I faced at first is that leadership was something that a lot of people knew what it was and didn't need to be taught. And you started with the really basic differences of opinion. Are there born leaders? Or are they learned to be leaders? You know, we have the whole nature-nurture thing. I could be, you know, a 19th century debate here. <laughs> so that's the first issue. Yeah. That we had to deal with and say, listen, there are individual differences, clearly. People are more charismatic. People are more confident. People are more extroverted versus introverted. There are these differences that, depending on the culture and the situation, will set someone up biologically to be more predisposed, to be more comfortable as a leader, follower, et cetera. But everyone, everyone can be developed and can learn to be a more effective leader and a more effective follower. Yes. That's the first challenge that we had. The next intellectual challenge we faced largely, because I work largely mostly for my educational work within a uniform service, armed forces and public health service, we also had to confront the history of leadership in the military, which actually dates back in terms of written work to the Iliad of Homer. Wow! When one actually goes back to the Iliad in particular, whether one reads the Iliad, the Aeneid, or the Odyssey, we start learning about military history. With that, however, we go through the centuries, and the military particularly, for understandable reasons, emphasized the leader, especially when we went through a period of history for centuries where a given army or group could name a champion. What's the most famous from the Bible? David and Goliath. Naming a champion of each army, the two will battle it out so that tens or hundreds or thousands of soldiers or warriors don't die or get maimed. And it's all based on the leader in that sense. The work of Thomas Carlyle and others in great man theory, the great person theory was very popular through the 19th century. But we came to learn in the 20th century that was limited. But because we work largely with military and medicine, the importance of the well-educated, confident leader was something else to overcome. And who else can be a leader? Was it more than being politically correct to say that? And I'm not going to give any specifics, but fill in your mind. How do we each picture the great leader? And who do we think physically, emotionally, height? gender sexual orientation race ethnicity do we have biases or beliefs well-founded or not on what should be the leader or not so breaking through those biases and understanding in self as well as others was a very important point Yep. i for example am actually and it surprises a lot of people don't know me well i'm really a pretty extreme introvert okay means I get my strength from being alone or being with a few people, but I can perform in front of tens, hundreds, or even thousands of people in a large auditorium. Again, I take it from my musician self Yep. where I've learned to play different roles, but to understand, I'm also small. I'm five foot six, you know, and, and, and so one, one thing, well, except for some of the smallest, Men in history have been the most dangerous leaders. <laughs> we'll assume that isn't true for now.
0: There's a whole complex named after that. I think. There, right? is,
1: there, is, there, is. <laughs> there is. So perhaps that you can do therapy with me after this project. <laughs> but in in seriousness, to understand, especially in our culture, and another interesting thing I've had as I've had the, the great privilege to help educate leaders in military, military medicine, and others, the number of truly outstanding women who I've helped become and develop as leaders, encouraging or mentoring them, who tell me these really powerful stories of what they faced in Iraq and Afghanistan five, 10, 15 years ago, commanding men and then finding that village elders wouldn't even talk with them. Wow! How did they deal with that issue? So a lot of the things is, is the other is, I'm really impressed, I must say this, is that, the, the leadership as a scholarly pursuit is finding its way to connect with meaningful application. Where there used to be a big division between the ivory tower, leadership consultants and others, there's much more of a mutual respect. So we learn from each other. I'm always learning, again, from applied settings, again, military and medicine but I also love learning from people I talk to like you and others in business settings, networking and the like. I think we have a long way to go, but the other new challenges we of course have perhaps a discussion of another podcast is the challenge. And I mean challenge of social media and how profound its effect on communication of leadership, followership and deep mis- in misunderstanding of our own support, as we're each, because of artificial intelligence, the way social media works, we each get that gigantic echo chamber of our own views, and it leads to gross misunderstanding. So I come back to my point, of all the things of leadership I've been studying for my career, the most important, if I can help people with one thing, just one, improve communication.
0: I, I literally was having this conversation with a, a couple of friends the other night, one one of them is from the UK, another one is from Colombia. Uh, one is a physician, a gentleman from Colombia, and and the, the gentleman from the UK is is in industry. And it's interesting because we were talking about media and the discussion kind of centered around the BBC in in the u k there there's still somewhat with the exception of the regs, there's somewhat kind of one voice that's sharing the narrative, and that's that's the b b c yes and and we were talking about that, and in the states a contextual shift that's coming more and more clear to me and and push back on this if you disagree. But if that leader is not almost over communicating and really commanding the narrative and highlighting the good and making people aware through multi channel means, they're limited. The void will be filled by someone, something that, and the narrative will be filled. And I think that's a major contextual shift. How does how does an American president, how does a leader of a large organization rise above the noise and again, communicate the narrative? Because if if it's just one channel, if it's one mode, if it's, you know, the press conference, well, okay, that's one, but how many people watch the press conference? <laughs> you better it better be, you know, and repetition is another interesting component of all of this, because I think at times there's a there's a quote, I'm not going to get it right, Neil, but it was something to the effect of failure of communication is the illusion that has occurred, that it, right. the illusion that it has occurred. So the leader says, I said it. But we all know in organizational life, if you aren't tired of saying it, you haven't said it enough.
1: <laughs> right? Now, Scott, you raised several points that, you that, the, that the listeners might relate to. Yeah. One is great. When we talk about communication, effective communication, we talk about the principles of communication. It goes back to work of Ebbinghaus and then others, the Yale Hoplin School of Communication, primacy, recency. The first thing said, the last thing said. Repetition, as you've already mentioned, simplicity. Yes. Point point power to point. Clarity, perceived relevance to the listener. And so it is both communicating for understanding and reaching the goal. But the other thing that reminded me that I've always found really fascinating that your comments just brought to mind is many of the positions of Benjamin Franklin. Mm. And I bring up Franklin because I've always been astonished, not only by his many contributions in various ways, but I've always personally found the most interesting is what he said about essentially communication and how essential it was for democracy. Unless the citizenry is informed and gets correct and accurate information and can have public discourse and debate, you cannot have a true democracy. And so his argument about not only as a newspaperman and journalist, and then not only poor Richard's Almanac and other ways of getting out information... But why he created the US Postal Service, Postal Office to get information to others, and why his design, as best exemplified in Philadelphia, is not only are there the different four different squares and the way addresses are to find and transmit information, but to have a central square and then little regional squares for people to come together, if you will, their nodes or networks, physical. Interaction. When we think now about the electronic age and social media, there are all sorts of experts who have taken control of nodes and networks in that way. They basically come to own, if you will, Benjamin Franklin's corners, his his speaking areas, Hyde Park, and you were you were talking about is the speaker's corner in Hyde Park is so famous in London. At the we all need to figure out How do we get a fair exchange of information where there also is accuracy, truth, integrity? A burden on all of us, especially as we work to to be open and understand and truly understand and see the world through other people's eyes.
0: Neil, I would love to have a conversation with you at some point just on this whole notion of communication. A, A good friend of mine who's at a university in Canada is taking a sabbatical and really exploring the literature around leadership and specifically communication, because that's his background is communication. But when you start looking and delving deep into the leadership literature, actually very little, at least what he's telling me has been written on that topic. And I think there's a gap there. And I think it's something rightfully that you are focusing on as just critical that I don't know even in some of our programming that we elevate to the degree it should be. There's some great scholars who've come out of communication, Hackman, Johnson, Northhouse, those individuals have kind of, that's their background and they've moved into the space of leadership studies. But I think it's it's a really interesting conversation that I would love to continue with you at some point because drilling down into that specific area it's important it's very very important and if there isn't intentionality and strategy around that especially now in this context you're you're leaving it up to anyone else to to command now that's at a larger global scale right but i think even in organizational life but when you think about the average manager's day or leader person in authority it's kind of like the evening news They're finding out the seven or eight things that went wrong, the fires, the things that are not going well or that need have been elevated to them. So their day can become that. And as a result, again, I could watch the nightly news tonight, millions and millions of good things happen today in my community, millions. But I have a funnel for the eight or nine that went wrong. And that is going to elevate those things in people's minds. And if I'm not commanding the narrative on my team of all of the good and highlighting and elevating and creating space for those narratives to exist, I'm leaving it up to chance and I'm leaving it up to other people's stories that they're making up in their heads. And there's a missed opportunity there. Don't you think?
1: I completely agree. And even more, you're leaving it open that vacuum to be filled by all sorts of misinformation.
0: Yes, yes, and okay. So that's a date.
1: <laughs> no, I, I look. I'd be. I'd love to do that. And whether Scott, I really appreciate. Thank you so much for inviting yeah. me to be on this. I'm really impressed with the podcast you put together and the service you're providing. And if I can ever be of help in any ways as a guest or commentator or in any way, please, you know, twenty four seven and. And to anyone who is bothering to listen to this, we hope that they've learned something and we hope that they'll share their insights as we learn from each other.
0: Exactly, exactly. Well, I always close these conversations down, Neil, by just asking uh, quickly, is there something that's caught your attention recently? Maybe something that you've been streaming or reading or listening to? It could be a podcast. Maybe it was a film. It could have to do with what we've just discussed. It might have nothing to do with what we've just discussed. But what's caught your attention recently? It could be an album that's caught your attention. Maybe a jazz album.
1: Uh, I believe that what is most relevant to also consider that one might miss when thinking about leadership is how everything we've talked about today and and other things on your podcast is also critical to relationships. And Mm. I mean family relationships, relationships with significant others, with children, with parents, et cetera. I'm very fortunate I've been married to the same person for 48 years, and we still remind ourselves of the importance of communication. And I definitely believe that as I've pivoted my own research from drug abuse and stress and other topics I've studied to the last eight years, focusing now entirely on leadership, I feel so fortunate that I try to apply every lesson I learn to relationships with my wife, with my ch- grown children, with friends to understand them better. So it's not leadership is not about telling others what to do. It's about people relating to each other. Mm. And and so that just to me cuts through everything.
0: I love it. So the 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 whole of what you've been exploring and learning, you're working to put into practice. I love it.
1: My wife would have to tell you if I'm succeeding or not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we are all we we are all works in progress, uh, That's true. <laughs> okay, yeah. sir. Thank you so much for being with me today. I really, really appreciate it. I look forward to our next conversation. And uh, thank you for the great work that you do. Thank you for exploring and he- thank you for helping us better understand this space. I'm going to put, for those who are listening, I am going to put some links into the show notes so that you have access to some of his work and some of how they're thinking about leadership so you can explore a little bit more. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for checking in. Be well. Bye-bye. Long-time listeners will know that I just have a love for someone who is exploring this topic from a unique and different perspective. So I think of Todd Deal when he said, you know, the concept of activation energy from chemistry and how he was applying that to, to leadership. I just think it's so much fun. It's so cool. And here you have an individual who is so well grounded in his natural space. <laughs> now he's moving into the space of leadership and looking at that topic through just a really unique and fun lens. And so I'm going to be really, really excited to hear about the results that Neil and his team are experiencing as they continue to do their explorations. Something to keep our eye on for sure. And then this whole conversation around communication. Can't wait to have my good friend Chris Gerhardt on the podcast when he's done with some of this research that he's looking at when it comes to communication and the topic of leadership. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space for us as leadership scholars, because I don't think we spend enough time there. And it is interesting. In today's context, that the leader isn't commanding the narrative with multi-channel messaging, it's very interesting how other things take over. And I think that's a contextual shift because it used to be that Walter Cronkite said, that's the way it is. And all of America said, okay, that's what Walter said. And you know what? That's the way it was. And, and today that's not the case in many parts of the world. And that's a contextual shift as Barbara Kellerman would suggest. So what do we do? How do we succeed in this new context? fascinating question. So much fun. As always, thank you for checking in. Thank you for listening. You know what? I'm not even going to talk about ILA anymore because I'm there. As this is published, I'm getting there. So I'm there. So I hope you're there too. If you are, pull me aside. We'll have a conversation. I'll buy you a coffee and we'll talk. Thanks everyone. Have a great, great day, evening, morning. As always, thanks for listening in. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.